Well, good afternoon and thank you for joining me again for Business, The Law and You. Julian Campbell here. We've got an interesting show lined up for you this week. But later in the program, we'll have a look at a Harvard Business Review tip. This particular one is disagreeing with someone more powerful than you which happens sometimes, doesn't it? Also going to be talking with Christina about a uh, small business uh, exposed book which was recently uh, published. But right now we're going to have our monthly chat with Tony Vidre from AV Chartered Accountants. Good afternoon, Tony. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. That's good. I disagree with someone more powerful than me all the time, my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you better listen and hear how to do it. (laughs) I'm going to. (laughs) So things work today. <laughs> it does work or doesn't work? No, nothing has worked to date. <laughs> okay. so, so we're going to talk about something that uh, Bill Shorten's been chatting about over the last few weeks, up and down, changing his views, franking credits. First of all, let's talk about what they are. Yeah, good start. Yeah, this has been fairly topical in the press in the last couple of weeks, um, and it is something that has um, has caught um, people's attention. So we'll start with a simple example. So say a, a company makes a profit of um, $1,000. Now, back in the old days, it used to pay tax at 30 cents in the dollar, so it would part with $300, and it would have an amount left over being $700 in that example. Now, what would happen is that once the company paid the tax office the $300, it unlocked a pool of frank dividends. And so what would happen is those $700 in dividends, in, in leftover money that the company had, it could be paid out to its shareholders um, as, a, as a frank dividend, meaning essentially that tax was already paid on that dividend mm. and the shareholder, even though they'd have to pay tax on it again, and in, some, and in the case where, let's say, the shareholder was in the highest tax bracket, 49 cents in the dollar, the, the individual would pay tax at 49 cents in the dollar, get a credit for the 30 cents the company has paid, and so they would be out of pocket personally for 19 cents in the dollar. And that's mm. how the system was designed to work. At the end of the day, the government gets their 49 cents in, the, in, in tax, 19 from the individual and 30 um, from, from the company. Now, when Paul Keating introduced this in 1987, before 1987, companies actually paid tax at quite a high rate. I mean, in fact, I think just before I started working, I think it, they were paying tax at about 49%. And I remember in the mid-'80s that we used to have to do this calculation where companies actually had to pay dividends out to its shareholders. They, they didn't have a discretion. They had to every single year, and there was a calculation that we had to do. Then the individual paid tax on those dividends again, and in some cases, you know, the, the taxing rate was up around 60%. Yeah. So it was very draconian. Paul Keating, quite cleverly, and, and um, it was the right thing to do back then, said in 1987, look, from this point on, once you start paying that tax, you know, the individual will get a credit for the, for the tax that's, um, that, the individual, that the company has paid on your behalf. That worked very well up until 2001, and um, when Howard and Costello decided that um, any excess franking credits um, would be refunded, now up until that point in time, if you either use, you know, use it or lose it, you either use those franking credits, um, otherwise you, um, you lost them. And at the end of the day, the big end of town always made sure that those franking credits were used up, you know, by mm. one of their companies, one of their, their entities. But at the low end, if, you're, if your income... Um, your tax bracket was less than 30 cents in the dollar. Um, too bad. You didn't get that excess um, franking credit. Now, but what, what was interesting in 2001 that a lot of people don't remember or, you know, it was one of those things that you just you wouldn't have a clue, um, is 
Back then, Howard and Costello were trying to introduce this thing called entity taxation. So they were actually trying to, to bring in this scenario where trusts were going to be taxed as if they were companies. And so what they said was, look, we'll start taxing trusts soon at 30 cents in the dollar, but what we'll do is we'll give everyone a credit um, for the tax that the trust has paid, the, tra- the, tax, the tax that the company has paid, and we'll start giving you these refunds. Now, what happened at the time was that the National Party got in the ear of, of um, the Liberal Party and said, look, there's a lot of farmers that are very unhappy with this because they operate their, their farming structures you know, in trusts. If they have to start paying tax, um, they're not going to be very pleased. They're going to, you're going to lose some votes. So Howard and Costello in 2001 actually dropped the whole concept of taxing trusts, but the franking credit refund stayed. Okay. That was a very bizarre thing that happened back then because it, mm. it never should have come in anyway. But somehow, you know, that slipped in separately. So from 2001, fast forward to 2006, this was the final days of the Liberal Party. Kevin 07 won the year after. And in the May 2006 budget, Costello brought in this um, rule where if super funds were in pension phase and they were paying people, you know, who were over 60 years of age... Super funds, all of a sudden, they didn't pay any income tax on their earnings um, at all. And so the, big, the two big categories of people who now get these refunds are pensioners who earn under $20,000 per annum, and there's a lot of those, um, mm-hmm. and have a think about how many there are out there. There's a number, so have a think about how many there are. Um, and, and then also super funds. So that's been in place for the last 12 years. And again, let's put things in context. In 2006, um, we were in the middle of a resources boom. We had enormous amounts of uh, GST receipts. The the company had more money, as in Australia, we had more money than we knew what to do with. We rode this resources boom. No one really cared that super funds were getting refunds, um, pensioners were getting refunds. Fast forward to now, where those GST receipts have dried up, the Bill Shortens of the world are looking for ways to start pouring... Yeah, to start calling maximum tax. And can you, again, and again, going back to that 2006 um, period as well, because we had such high, um, you know, budget surpluses and a lot of, you know, cash collections with GST receipts, Costello gave us, um, I think it was six or seven consecutive years of tax cuts. Yeah. Now, logic dictates that once those receipts dry up, Someone has to reverse those tax cuts. Now, you'd be a fool to do that if you're a politician because it's not very popular to reverse. Yeah, you'd get voted out the next election. So both both sides are looking for ways to to claw back um, income tax from from all of us. Yeah, Okay. So we have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, and look, and again, so I'll give you the I'll give you the the, uh, the number three hundred and thirty thousand pensioners apparently um, that it it, um, it affects. There, that's the number that came out of the um, of the ATO of pensioners who are filing tax returns or putting in um, returns to get um, the you know those small franking, franking. credits yeah. as a refund. Yeah. And and again, it was it was Bill Shorten really mis mismanaged uh, that because at the end of the day, and in fact, I read another report that said there were ninety three thousand pensioners that it affected across 13 marginal seats. So you can see what happened. Within a week, the party got an easy and went, well, this is not going to be very popular with all those 330,000 people who vote. So he's now changed his mind, reversed it, and, and come up with a bit of a hybrid to say that, well, we will, if we get in power, we'll allow those franking credits to be refunded as long as those pensioners are on some form of a pension. So there's still a little bit of an if 
you know, if then but sort of um, situation. It's easy to say things when you're in opposition and wait and see what happens when they come in, doesn't it? Uh, look, I'll tell you now. <laughs> there's, there's a, look, there's a lot of things, and there's one that I that I remember, and I've got a, a lot, I'm cursed with a long memory, and that is um, in the 1996 budget. Right, it's going back a long time now. Um, the I think it was the Liberal Party back then. Um, promised, they announced, that they would actually increase the super guarantee threshold, which is $450, and has been $450, Julian, since 1992. They have... No one has ever increased this amount. They announced that they were going to double it to $900. So if you had an employee who earned under $900, you wouldn't have Mm -hmm. to pay the, you know, 3% super guarantee, whatever the percentage was. But it's never been changed. (laughs) (laughs) So there's lots of things that they announce even when they're in power and bring it in a budget and it just disappears. It just never mm-hmm. sees the um, never sees the light of day. Right. So. Well, thanks for your time, Tony. We'll have a chat awesome. with you again next month. Look forward to it. Thanks, have Julian. Tony Vidray there from AV Chartered Accountants. Yes, so politicians say a lot of things when they're not in power. We'll wait and see what happens. You're listening to Business, the Law and You on 2NURFM. Time to pop over for our... Um, Minute on Innovation with Christina. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. So we've, uh, we're going to talk about a, a small book, business book that's just been released by Professor Scott Holmes. Yes, we are. Um, and in light of the fact that um, Professor Scott Holmes is a guest at the, at the Newcastle Writers' Festival this weekend, I thought it might be a, um, mm. a nice thing to, to highlight his book a little bit. So he's written a book on, on tribes that drive economies. Um, and what is really interesting is with all the research that's out there about small business and, and, um, and what's going on, you know, in the world of small business, this book professes to be one of the very few that actually has gone out there and gotten into the heads um, of business owners. So, and to actually come up with the, with the idea, and when you say it out loud, it sounds like a bit of a dirt moment, but um, that businesses are not, they're not individual firms. They're actually extensions of the people that own them. Mm. And when you say it like that, it, it, it's a no-brainer. But the way that we've actually studied small business often in the past um, is that we have lumped them together in um, in clusters instead of actually looking looking at them as individual uh, organisations that are, are extensions of people, you know. So everything is based around the person. The small business, um, you know, small business actually drives economies around the world. That's one thing that has become particularly clear um, over the last few years, and again, is highlighted in this book. But what I, one of the interesting things I found before we get into the tribes that um, that, that Scott has come up with uh, is the different um, categorizations of what small business is in different countries around the world. So, for example, um, in Australia, we categorize a small business as having under 20 employees, like 20 or under employees, and I I must admit, I work with small business mm. and I thought that it was bigger than that. So a, a small business enterprise in Australia is, is categorised as um, 20 or less. In New Zealand, it's the same thing. In Singapore, it's under 200 employees. Wow. Now, get this, in China, it's a small business is um, classified as something with under 1,000 employees. In the United States, um, it's under 500. In the UK, it's under 250. So... Clearly, it's aligned with with the population, mm. uh, but even you would think that in in the way in operations, uh, 
you know, the way a thousand person, thousand employee organisation operates is completely different to the way twenty person or under organisation operates. So very logistic differences. So that was an interesting um, fact that came out in the book itself as well. But Scott, the, what they've done is they've divided the businesses into five tribes: uh, the seekers, the what nows, the drifters the satisfices and the digital. And they go through and they compare throughout the book um, size of business, uh, how long they've been around, what the general income is, but it's mainly around, the book is mainly around their attitude to business. So, for example, most of those categories, um, so the seekers, the what-nows, the drifters, the satisfices, all employ two to four people or less, okay? The digitals employ six to ten, and the digitals are really easy for us to understand at the moment mm. because they're anything that's tech-oriented, um, they're growth, they achieve growth, they're the innovators, and they're the ones that take advantage of, of technology, of the internet, of software. They make up about 20% of, of small business operations. The others are kind of, they're very similar, um, but there's a few distinguishing factors between them. Most of them, so the other four, Seekers, What Now's Drifters, Satisficers, all earn $500,000 or under. The digitals are mainly the only ones that, that have got an income stream um, of higher yeah. than 500000 yeah, higher than 500000 uh, And then there's just, uh, there's, you know, the Seekers are usually under five years old, the What Now's you know, 10 years and over, the drifters, five years and over, the satisfiers, 10 years and over, the digitals clearly potentially have been around for a while or they're newly established all the time. But it's the individual traits um, that I found really interesting in the, in the book. And I know that we're running out of time. We are. And potentially we could continue the individualisation of this next week. Well, I think that's a good idea if we can go into the, uh, the personality and the traits of the different styles. Uh, yep. We can glean some stuff from that. That'll be great. Okay, so we'll talk about that next week and have a wonderful week. You too. Have have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. A great little book, Small Business Exposed. That uh, interesting, those statistics, isn't it? It's time for one of our Harvard Business Review tips. This one here, disagreeing with someone more powerful than you. What should you do when you disagree with someone more powerful than you? It may be tempting to say nothing, but consider the risks. Say, a project can be derailed or you could lose your team's trust and then realistically weigh them against the potential consequences of taking action. Before you share your thoughts, think about what the powerful person cares about. It may be the credibility of their team or getting a project done on time. When you do speak up, connect your disagreement to a higher shared purpose. It's smart to give the powerful person psychological safety by asking permission as in... I know we seem to be moving towards a first quarter commitment here. I have reasons to think that it won't work. I'd like to lay out my reasoning. Would that be okay? Watch your language carefully. Avoid any judgment words such as short-sighted, foolish or hasty and stick to the facts. Show respect while maintaining your own self-respect. That's another great little tip there from the Harvard Business Review tip. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we're going to talk about the laws relating to data safety in your business with Larry Wilson from Wilson Data Systems. We'll have our Minute on Innovation with Christina and we'll have some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. 
I'd love your company again for Business, the Law and You at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week and as Angelina Jolly once said, some people say you're going the wrong way when it's simply a way of your own. <laughs>